my novel, Poor Things, is a, you might say, a modern gothic novel. Uh, gothic novels, as they were called, a late 18th century form of fiction in which um, the grotesque, the superstitious, the exotic, um, the somewhat horrible was part of it. And uh, the, the forms of it, you had the Castle of Otranto um, by, oh gosh, I forgot his name again. Um, uh, sorry, Walpole wrote The Castle of Otranto. There was Vathek, uh, a kind of uh, Arabian Nights fantasy by, oh, who was the homosexual millionaire uh, who built Fountain's Abbey? Anyway, abbeys and uh, and uh, Gothic constructions of the of the Middle Ages were uh, North Ang uh, North Abbey by um, Jane Austen. Jane Austen mm. was, of course, not at all uh, a genuine. Uh, gothic novel, but it was rather mocking the taste for them, in that the uh, the he the heroine of it is very keen on horrid gothic novels, and um, anyway the uh, Nightmare Abbey by Thomas Love Peacock, all his short novels are uh, Headlong Hall, Crotchet Castle, and Nightmare Abbey. And making fun of the literary figures of the time, um, and uh, Nightmare Abbey inclines to be making fun of the of the Gothic, and it has characters in it who are based on friends of his. Mm -hmm. um, Coleridge is one, uh, Shelley, Byron, and um, anyway the. Uh, Nightmare Abbey has, um, has as a kind of preface to it an extract from the butler who wrote Hudibras. There's a dark lantern of the spirit which none see by but those who bear it, that makes them in the dark see visions and hag themselves with apparitions, find racks for their own minds and vaunt of their own misery and want. And there is another bit of an epigraph uh, from Ben Jonson's Every Man to His Humour, a conversation between uh, Matthew and Stevenson. Matthew says, Oh, it's your only fine humour, sir. Your true melancholy breeds your perfect fine wit, sir. I'm melancholy myself. Divers times, sir. And then do I no more but take a pen and paper presently and overflow you half a score or a dozen of sonnets at a sitting. His friend says, Truly, sir, and I love such things out of measure. The other says, Why, I pray you, sir, make use of my study. It's at your service. The other says, I thank you, sir. I shall be bold. I warrant you. 
Have you a stool there to be melancholy upon? Anyway, chapter one of uh, Nightmare Abbey. Nightmare Abbey, a venerable family mansion in a highly picturesque state of semi-dilapidation, pleasantly situated in a strip of dry land between the sea and the fens at the verge of the county of Lincoln, had the honour to be the seat of Christopher Glowry, Esquire. This gentleman, naturally of an atrabiliarious temperament, and much troubled with those phantoms of indigestion which are commonly called blue devils, he had been deceived in an early friendship, he had been crossed in love, and had offered his hand from pique to a lady who accepted it from interest, and who in so doing violently tore asunder the bonds of a tried and youthful attachment. Her vanity was gratified by being the mistress of a very extensive, if not very lively, establishment, but all the springs of her sympathy were frozen. Riches she possessed, but that which enriches them, the participation of affection, was wanting. All that they could purchase for her became indifferent to her, because that which they could not purchase, and which was more valuable in themselves, she had for their sake thrown away. She discovered, when it was too late, that she had mistaken the means for the end, that riches rightly used are instruments of happiness, but are not in themselves happiness. In this willful blight of her affections, she found them valueless as means. They had been the end to which she had immolated all her affections, and were now the only end that remained to her. She did not confess this to herself as a principle of action, but it operated through the medium of unconscious self-deception, and terminated in inveterate avarice. She laid on external things the blame of her mind's internal disorder, and thus became by degrees an accomplished scold. She often went her daily rounds through a series of deserted apartments, every creature in the house vanishing at the creak of her shoe. Much more of the sound of her voice, to which the nature of things affords no simile, for as far as the voice of a woman, when attuned by gentleness and love transcends all other sounds in harmony, so far does it surpass all, other, all others in discord when stretched into unnatural shrillness by anger and impatience. Mr. Clowry used to say, it, who, say that his house was no better than a spacious kennel, for everyone, he, what, everyone in it led the life of a dog. Disappointed both in love and in friendship, and looking upon human learning as vanity, he had come to a conclusion that there was one good thing in the world, that is to say, a good dinner, and that this his parsimonious lady seldom suffered him to enjoy. But one morning, like Sir Leoline in Christabel, he woke and found his lady dead, and, and remained a very consolate widower with one small child. Uh, by the way, uh, Christabel is one of um, Coleridge's unfinished poems. And um, 
Sir Leo Lyons, one of the characters in it, one day walked and found his lady dead. That is his wife. Anyway, uh, Mr. Glowry walked and remained a very consolate widower with one small child. The normal one is a a husband, a widowed husband is disconsolate Um, and, and is unable to console himself. The only son and heir Mr. Glowry had christened Skythrop from the name of maternal ancestor who had hanged himself one rainy day on a feat of tidium vitae and had been eulogised by a coroner's jury in the comprehensive phrase of fellow de se, on which account Mr. Glowry held his memory in high honour and made a punch bowl of his skull. When Skythrop grew up, he was sent, as usual, to a public school where a little learning was painfully beaten into him, and from thence to the university, where it was carefully taken out of him, and he was sent home like a well-threshed ear of corn, with nothing in his head, having finished his edu- with nothing in his head, having finished his education to the high satisfaction of the masters and fellows of his college, who had, in testimony of their approbation, presented him with a silver fish slice, on which his name figured the head of a laudatory inscription in some semi-barbarous dialect of Anglo-Saxonized Latin. His fellow students over, who drove tandem and random in great perfection, and were connoisseurs in good inns, had taught him to drink deep as he departed. He'd passed much of his time with these choice spirits, and had seen the rays of the midnight lamp tremble in many a lengthening file of empty bottles. He passed his vacations sometimes at Nightmare Abbey, sometimes in London, at the house of his uncle, Mr. Hillary, a very cheerful and elastic gentleman who had married the sister of the melancholy Mr. Glowry. The company that frequented his home was the gayest of the gay. Skythrop danced with the ladies and drank with the gentlemen, and was pronounced by both a very accomplished, charming fellow and an honour to the university. At the house of Mr. Hillary, Skythrop first saw the beautiful Miss Emily Girouette. He fell in love, which is nothing new. He was favourably received, which is nothing strange. Mr. Glowry and Mr. Girouette had a meeting on the occasion and quarrelled about the terms of the bargain, which is neither new nor strange. The lovers were torn asunder, weeping and vowing at everlasting constancy, and three weeks after this tragical event, the lady was led a smiling bride to the altar by the Honourable Mr. Lackwit, which is neither strange nor new. Skythrop received this intelligence at Nightmare Abbey and was half distracted on the occasion. It was his first disappointment and preyed deeply on his sensitive spirit. His father, to comfort him, read him a commentary on Ecclesiastes, which he had himself composed and which demonstrated incontrovertibly that all is vanity. He insisted particularly on, on the text One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman amongst all those have I not found. 
How could he expect it, said Skythrop, when the whole thousand were locked up in his seraglio? His experience is no precedent for a free state of society like that in which we live. Lock up, locked up at large, said Mr. Glowdy, the result is the same. Their minds are always locked up, and vanity and interest keep the key. I speak feelingly, Skythrop. I'm sorry for it, sir, said Skythrop, but how is it that their minds are locked up? The fault is in their artificial education, which studiously models them into mere musical dolls to be set out for sale in the great toy shop of society. To be sure, said Mr. Cloudy, their education is not so well finished as yours has been, and your idea of a musical doll is good. I bought my one myself, but it was confoundedly out of tune. But whatever be the cause, Skythrop, the effect is certainly this that one is pretty nearly one is pretty nearly as good as another, as far as any judgment can be formed of them before marriage. It is only after marriage that they show their true qualities, as I know by bitter experience. Marriage is, marriage is there for a lottery, and the less choice and selection a man bestows on his ticket, the better, for if he has incurred considerable pains and expenses to obtain a lucky number, and his lucky number proves a blank, he experiences not a simple but a complicated disappointment. The loss of labour and money being superadded to the disappointment of drawing a blank, which, constituting amply and entirely the grievance of him who has chosen his ticket at random, is from its simplicity, simplicity more endurable. Sorry, my lips are very dry. This very excellent reasoning was thrown away upon Skythrop, who retired to his tower as dismal and disconsolate as before. The tower which Skythrop inhabited stood at the southeastern angle of the abbey, and on the southern side the foot of the tower opened on a terrace which was called the garden, though nothing grew on it but ivy and a few amphibious weeds. The southwestern tower, which was ruinous and full of owls, might with equal propriety have been called the aviary. This terrace or garden, or terrace garden, or garden terrace, the, the, neighbor, the reader may name it at, at his preference, took in an oblique view of the open sea and fronted a long tract of level sea coast and a fine monotony of fens and windmills. The reader will judge from what we have said that this building was a sort of castellated abbey, and it will probably occur to him to inquire if it had been one of the strongholds of the ancient church militant. Whether this was the case, or how far it had been indebted to the taste of Mr. Glowry's ancestors for any transmutations from its original estate, are, unfortunately, circumstances not within the pale of our knowledge. The northwestern tower contained the apartments of Mr. Glowry. The moat at the base and the fens beyond comprised the whole of his prospect. 
This moat surrounded the abbey and was in immediate contact with the walls on every side but the south. The northeastern tower was appropriated to the domestics, who Mr. Glowry always chose by one of two criterions, a long face or a dismal name. His butler was Raven, his steward was Crow, his valet was Skelet. Mr. Glowry maintained that the valet was of French extraction and that his name was Squelet. His grooms were Mattox and Graves. On one occasion, being in want of a footman, he received a letter from a person signifying himself Diggory Death's Head, and lost no time in securing this acquisition. But on Diggory's arrival, Mr. Glowry was horror-struck by the sight of a round, ruddy face and a pair of laughing eyes. Death's Head was always grinning, not a ghastly smile, but the grin of a comic mask, and disturbed the echoes of the hall with some much unhallowed laughter, which Mr. Glowry, so much unhallowed laughter, that Mr. Glowry gave him his discharged, discharge. Dickory, however, had stayed long enough to make conquests of all the old gentleman's maids, Left and left him a flowering colony of young death's heads to join the join chorus with the owls that had before been the exclusive choristers of Nightmare Abbey. The main body of the building was divided into rooms of state, spacious apartments for feasting, and numerous bedrooms for visitors, whoever were few and far between. Family interests compelled Mr. Glowry to receive occasional visits from Mr. and Mrs. Hillary, who paid them from the same motive, and, as the lively gentleman on these occasions found, few conductors for his exuberant gaiety, it became like a double-charged electric jar, which often exploded in some burst of outrageous merriment to the signal discomposure of Mr. Glowry's nerves. Another occasional visitor, much more to Mr. Glowry's taste, was Mr. Flosky, a very lachrymose and morbid gentleman of some note in the literary world. And this is based on Coleridge. Mm. Um, but in his own estimation, of much more merit than name. The part of his character which recommended him to Mr. Glowry was his very fine sense of the grim and the tearful. No one could relate a dismal story with so much minutiae of supererogatory wretchedness. No one could call up a raw head and bloody bones with so many adjuncts and circumstances of ghastliness. Mystery was his mental element. He lived in the midst of that visionary world in which nothing is but what is not. He dreamed with his eyes open and saw ghosts dancing round him at noontide. He had been in his youth an enthusiast for liberty, and had hailed the dawn of the French Revolution as the promise of a day that was to banish war and slavery, and every form of vice and misery from the face of the earth. Because all this was not done, he deduced that nothing was done, and from this deduction, according to his system of logic, he drew a conclusion that worse than nothing was done, that the overthrow of a feudal fortress of tyranny 
and superstition was the greatest calamity that had ever befallen mankind, and that their only hope now was to rake the rubbish together and rebuild it without any of those loopholes by which light had originally crept in. To qualify himself for a coadjutor in this laudable task, he plunged into the central opacity of Kantian metaphysics and lay several years in transcendental darkness till the common daylight of common sense became intolerable to his eyes. He called the sun an ignis fatuus. Um, uh, I mean, the will of the wisp, you know. Uh, uh, and exhorted all who would listen to his friendly voice, which were about as many as called God Save King Richard, to shelter themselves from the delusive radiance in the obscure haunt of old philosophy. This word old had great charms for him. The good times were all, the good old times were always on his lips, meaning the days when polemic theology was in its prime and rival prelates beat the drum ecclesiastic with Herculean vigour till the one wound up his series of syllogisms with the very orthodox conclusion of roasting the other. But the dearest friend of Mr. Glowry was his most welcome guest, Mr. Toobad, the Manichaean millenarian, the twelfth verse of the twelfth chapter of Revelation was always in his mouth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come among you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. He maintained that the supreme dominion of the world was, for wise purposes, given over for a while to the evil principle, and that this precise period of time, commonly called the Enlightened Age, was the point of his plenitude of power. He used to add that by and by he would be cast down, and a high and happy order of things succeed, but he never omitted the saving clause, not in our time, which last words were always echoed in doleful response by the sympathetic Mr. Glory. Another and very frequent visitor was the Reverend Mr. Larynx, the vicar of Claydyke, a village about ten miles distant, a good-natured accommodating divine who was always most obligingly ready to take a dinner and a bed at the house of any country gentleman in distress for a companion. Nothing came amiss to him. A game at billiards, at chess or draughts, at backgammon, at piquet, or at all fours in a tete-a-tete, or any game on the cards, round, square or triangular, in a party of any number exceeding two. He would even dance among friends rather than with a lady, even if she were on the wrong side of thirty, and would sit still for want of a partner. For a ride or a walk or a sail in the morning, a song after dinner, a ghost story after supper, a bottle of port with a squire or a cup of green tea with his lady, for all or any of these, or for anything else that was agreeable, to anyone else, consistently with the dye of his coat, the Reverend Mr. Larynx was at all times equally ready. When at Nightmare Abbey he would condole with Mr. Glowry, drink Madeira with Skythrop, crack jokes with Mr. Hillary, hand Mrs. Hillary to the piano, 
take charge of her fan and gloves, and turn over music with surprising dexterity. Quote revelations with Mr. Toobad and lament for the good old times of feudal darkness with the transcendental Mr. Flotsky. <laughs>